Hey guys, Eric Olson here, and welcome back to the Science Centric Podcast. This episode is all about snakes, animals that seem to have a polarizing effect on people. You either love them and see them as beautiful, gracile creatures, or you hate them because you fear getting bit, or maybe they just move in a way that makes your skin crawl. Either way, snakes have fascinated humans for millennia. They appear in many of our oldest and best known stories, such as Adam and Eve's fall from grace in the Garden of Eden. And they also appear in ancient symbols such as the Ouroboros, a snake eating its own tail, which first appeared around 13th century BC. Despite our long history with snakes, most of us have little first-hand knowledge of them. They are masters of camouflage, and as a result, we often don't know when they're right at our feet. If one does cross our path, we don't know what to make of its behavior. Is it running away from something or coming to attack us? Is it courting or fighting? And often we can't even figure out what kind of snake we're looking at. After all, there are around 3,600 known species, many of which resemble each other. Is it a venomous cottonmouth or a benign brown water snake, a deadly coral snake, or a scarlet king snake, which is only dangerous to other snakes? Here to educate us on these matters is David Steen, a wildlife biologist who specializes in the so-called creepy crawlies. He is the author of the award-winning blog, Living Alongside Wildlife, where he writes about natural history, ecology, and his own research. He is also prolific on Twitter, helping people identify reptiles and debunking common wildlife myths, particularly about snakes. He explores many of these myths in his new book, Secrets of Snakes, which came out earlier this fall. I spoke to David about how to ID venomous snakes, the top three myths he'd like to dispel, and whether daredevil personalities like Coyote Peterson and Steve Irwin help or hurt wildlife. But before we dive in, just a friendly reminder to head over to sciencecentric.com support to help keep this independent podcast going. We accept direct donations via Patreon and also get a kickback on any purchases made through our website at no added cost to you. You can also show your support by sharing this episode with a friend, writing a review on iTunes, or following us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at ScienceCentric. All right, enough of that. Let's get into it. David Steen, thanks so much for coming on the Science Centric podcast. Um, I've been following you on Twitter for many years. I'm a fan, and uh, I, I'm, I'm glad that we actually get to talk face-to-face. This is, this is fantastic. So anyways, welcome. Thank you. I've been looking forward to it. Great. Um, so you are a herpetologist, that's how you, you would define yourself and a, a wildlife biologist, or how would you, how would you define what you do? Sure. I'm a broadly trained wildlife biologist, uh, but my specialty is amphibians and reptiles. So herpetologists would be fine. Uh-huh. I was thought that, called worse. <laughs> I always think that's such a funny name for somebody that study, studies snakes and reptiles and it, it sounds yeah. like it's i mean it's just not a very flattering name uh obviously but um do you know where that comes from the, the yeah the crawly the creepy crawlies basically yeah. i think if you go back to the latin that's what it's referring to oh interesting okay i didn't know that. um yeah so common source of confusion for sure <laughs> um so the the book that you have out um, is all about snakes. You study some other uh, kind of creepy crawlies, but yes, yes, it's, it's peeking up from below the screen, ready to strike. Um, <laughs> and you know, one of the things that, and I and I think I mentioned this to you in an email, is that I'm from Western Washington, Seattle area originally, and uh, now live in New York City. And like, I just don't have a huge experience of snakes in my environment. Um, I, you know, I remember catching like little black garter snakes when I was a kid and, and they would throw up on me. And, um, and I, I don't know if that's a common behavior, but that, that I, people I talk to all seem to say that happened to them. Um, and then of course, New York city, I'm not, I'm really not aware of, I if, I've never seen a snake here. Um, so, um, a lot of the questions in your book, which, is kind of the framework for the book is, um, you know, around these questions that you have coming in and, uh, and it just, a lot of them seem very foreign to me. 
Um, so, so I guess my question to you is, is, you know, who is this book for? Who is this book written to? Sure. Well, I think we're going to reject the premise of your excuse that you, <laughs> uh, you, because of the places that you've lived, you haven't been exposed to snakes. You know, you're right in Washington. Uh, there's a, there's garter snakes that you could find. There's even some rattlesnakes. And then even in New York city, I'm not letting you off the hook because, <laughs> you know, you could go to central park. Uh, you could even just go to woodlots and you can find some, you won't find all the snakes that historically were there, but you can find garter snakes and you can find DK's brown snake, which are probably one of the most common snakes that I'm asked about anywhere. So uh -huh. also just head on over the Hudson River and you can find timber rattlesnakes, black rat snakes, really lots of cool stuff. Oh, wow. So, yeah, I hope I've encouraged you or uh, inspired you to go look for them. <laughs> but all that said, uh, the book is written for, I think, people that are interested in snakes. And, you know, maybe they love them, maybe they hate them, but they're kind of interested. And they've heard these uh, tales and myths and misconceptions over their lives, but they don't necessarily know which is true and which is not. Um, I kind of introduce what I think is more of a scientific way of tackling these myths and mm -hmm. talk about what's, what do we have evidence for and what do we not? Yeah. Uh, a lot of the, a lot of the issues uh, or questions that you get from people seem to center around identification. And maybe you could just talk a little bit about how wildlife biologists tackle identification. Um, I think there's a method there. I mean, you didn't, specifically outline it uh, actually there was a section i remember that you did sort of outline the things that you look for but maybe you could just go through that a little bit um it sure. seems that most people when they come across uh, a snake or any kind of wildlife they just they have either have no idea or they're basing it on something that they've heard about or maybe they've seen but it maybe not even the same species so what what is, yeah. what is your approach and and how could uh, people that aren't trained biologists, what could they do to kind of bring that into their approach to dealing with wildlife? Sure. Yeah. And you know, there aren't really easy answers. People are always looking for tips and tricks when it comes to identification, but it's kind of like learning another language. The tips and tricks can help you out, but you really need to put some time in. And I did put that time in when I was young and when I was in school, just looking through a field guide, looking at pictures and familiarizing myself with these animals. So now when I see an animal, it just kind of clicks. Um, when you have friends or family over, I'll turn it around to you. When you have these friends or family over and they walk in the door, how do you recognize them? Oh, that's a good question. Probably or how do you at, identify them? <laughs> I probably look at their face first, actually. Um, it, just, it just happens, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. the same for uh, when you become familiar with these different species. You're not looking at these individual mm -hmm. characteristics. You just recognize them. Yeah. Um, so for some people that don't have that familiarity, you know, if your friends and family walked into somebody else's house, they won't recognize them. That way they might try and figure out who they were. Um, and I think that's what people do with some of these snakes that they're not familiar with. Mm -hmm. They'll remember these little rules that they think, these really specific characters, which may or may not be helpful. Mm -hmm. um, so, so basically what you're saying is that it's just through practice and repetition that you, you become familiar with what you're looking at? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. And that, that's most of the time. However, there are some really specific species that you need to hold in your hand and you need to look at specific scales. That's the exception though. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, the, so there's nothing we can do other than just, <laughs> just get out into wildlife and, 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 and interact with species more. Obviously I need to do that more because I'm, I've, <laughs> I've missed out on all the snakes in my environment, but, um, I don't want to say that it's easy, but yeah. it is straightforward. And I think exposure is the first step. And that's one of the reasons that I identify so many snakes on Twitter, mm -hmm. just trying to help people. Eventually it'll click, mm -hmm. uh, but you do have to kind of look at pictures and get confirmation of what you're looking for. Yeah. Uh, but if you pay attention, it'll happen. And do you, have you ever misidentified something? <laughs> 
surely it's happened right um hopefully nothing when, venomous <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm really well the trick is that if it's a really blurry picture if i'm not sure then i don't identify it publicly or i'll say i don't know what this is but i think it might be this uh i, I do take it seriously because you're right there are potentially venomous species and i don't want to take the risk of telling them something wrong uh i think one time I identified a snake as a rainbow boa, but it was actually a rubber boa. That was more like a mind uh, fart, if you if you <laughs> if you'll uh, if you'll let me get away with that. Okay. But uh, generally speaking, I'm pretty conservative with the IDs, and most often it's it's pretty easy. Yeah. Is there a particular species that people send your way that? that is most often that they're wanting you to identify? Yeah, there's three, well, I'd say there's three or four main suspects. There's the water snake, the common water snake, Neurodiocipodon. There's the rat snake, which is a group of different species that look pretty similar. Uh, the gopher snake, that it's out west. Mm -hmm. And uh, kind of, and uh, the decays brown snake. These are all kind of nondescript brown snakes some have kind of faint patterns and so they're often mistaken for copperheads and cottonmouths yeah i mean one thing that's interesting is that when you think about biology and you think about species and how species look we all think of those field guides that have a very you know definitive uh kind of specimen that and you think oh well gosh all of the snakes should look like this or all the you know and in reality it and you, and you mentioned this in the book, it's a lot fuzzier, right? So yeah. you could have two uh, specimens of the same species that actually look quite different, right? For sure. And some of these species, they have these really large geographic ranges and they're subject to different evolutionary pressures. So they're mm -hmm. the same species, but they may look different. Mm -hmm. And just like, you know, any other species, genetic anomalies can occur sometimes. So mm -hmm. you don't want to become too... Uh, rigid in these rules in identifying venomous snakes, for example, because weird things happen. Yeah. One of the species that you talk a lot about and I think comes up a lot is the cottonmouth. I have no knowledge of this. I the only the first time I think I heard of one was I was I was camping uh, near the the Delaware Water Gap uh, in, on the border between um, Pennsylvania and New Jersey. And they, this woman was like, hey, there's a cottonmouth in the water over there. But um, having read your book, I think that's probably not the case. So, so why, why cottonmouths? Why are people so fascinated with these snakes? Yeah, it's cottonmouths and the closely related copperhead. Uh -huh. uh, they're just kind of a catch-all for venomous species. You know, in the United States, there's the coral snake. Uh -huh. Very distinctive, very characteristic there's the rattlesnake. There's a number of different species. They've got the rattle on the tail, very distinctive. So when people see this snake, and there's this uh, psychological mechanism that they think it's venomous. It's clearly not a coral snake. It's clearly not a rattlesnake. And so there's these copperheads and cottonmouths that I think just bear the brunt of this mistaken identification. Mm -hmm. Copperheads tend to be terrestrial. Cottonmouths tend to be water. So if there's a mystery snake in the water, it gets identified as a cottonmouth. If there's a mystery snake on land, it gets identified as a copperhead. Uh -huh. uh, it's it's not really a biological phenomenon. It's more of a psychological one. People uh, hear more about these snakes, and so there's this kind of reinforcing mechanism that when you see something, it's what you um, think is more uh, exciting. It's what has registered more often in the past. Yeah. Uh, it, they're not going through, generally speaking, they're not going through the process of identifying these species and becoming incorrect. They're automatically coming to a conclusion yeah. based on previous experience. Yeah. And it's always the worst case scenario, right? Like it's, it's gotta be the, the most venomous, <laughs> dangerous species. Yeah. But I mean, that, so, there, it seems like on some level that's, that from, from our perspective as a species, that's an adaptive trait that maybe is to our benefit, right? I mean, to, to, to see, oh, hey, there's a, you know, snake there that's, you know, has a certain color and I'm going to react to that because I remember my friend got bitten by that snake or something like that. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that we could come up with some evolutionary explanations. What's less clear is that when I explain to them why it's not that venomous species, they still cling to that, mm. and they will argue with me about it. Uh, so there, there's some layers. There's some layers there for sure. <laughs> so it's so it's one of those situations where they want to ask you uh, for your expertise. Then you tell them this is my expert. This is my expert opinion. And they go, Oh no, that's that can't be it. No, that's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Although to to be fair, those people are generally pretty receptive of the answers. Sometimes I will find people who are talking about snakes online who didn't necessarily seek me out. If I get a bad reaction, it tends to be from those folks, which I guess is a little bit more understandable. (laughs) Hey there. We'll get back to the interview shortly. I just wanted to take a moment to ask a favor. To continue to bring you great science content, we need your help building our community. There are several ways you can help out. One, tell someone you know about us. Word of mouth carries a lot of weight. Two, follow us on social media. We're at ScienceCentric on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Or number three, write a podcast review on iTunes. Reviews help this podcast get noticed. Thanks for your help, and now back to the show. Um, so just to back up a little bit, so you you grew up in New York, upstate, or yeah? Well, you know, upstate is kind of fighting words. It's, <laughs> slight, it's slightly more upstate than New York City, but it's not upstate. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm from Orange County, which is right across the Hudson River, uh-huh. uh, um, near Sterling Forest State Park and Bear Mountain. Yeah. And so pretty close to the city, about 45 minutes, but surprisingly rural. Yeah, it's a it's very um, outdoorsy area and beautiful. And a lot of people don't think, when they think of New York, they think of New York City or Long Island. They don't necessarily think of of the nature that's around here. Um, so how yeah. did, how did you, how did you get interested in studying reptiles? Uh, and, and then how did you end up in the South? Uh, cause it seems like, um, maybe the South is actually a better place for the study of reptiles than, than some Northern wow. climate. Well, you just, you just offended a lot of Northeastern <laughs> reptologists right there. And you also threw Long Island under the bus. And I want to point out there's some nice, <laughs> natural areas there there's these unique sandy habitats and you've got lots of cool creatures like hogno snakes spadefoot toads tiger salamanders all right there in long island so um but to your i apologize question, i apologize to the to the fauna of, of long island that's right <laughs> um so as far back as I can remember, uh, I was wading through streams, lifting up rocks, looking for crayfish and salamanders and snakes. And somewhere along the way, I started getting paid for it. And that's kind of been been my career. Yeah. Uh, I did undergrad at the University of New Hampshire and my master's at Syracuse. And that was in the Northeast. Yeah. There, are, there are some cool species, some unique species out there, but the, the warm climate of the southeastern United States just really lends itself to a greater diversity, a greater abundance of snakes and turtles and things. And, and this is indeed where I ended up. Yeah. And there's a lot of invasive species down there too, right? Uh, in Florida in particular. Um, I remember seeing yeah. on Twitter that you, you were involved in the, isn't there like a Python roundup in Florida where, where they're, you're going around um, picking up all these pythons that have moved in? Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so South Florida, really warm, stable climate. And it's also the hub for uh, the global pet industry. Right. And so you get a lot of escapes and releases. And it's not just reptiles. It's fish and birds and all kinds of stuff. There's even monkeys. There's capybaras. You know, it really, uh, there's wow. a lot of unique things that don't belong in South Florida that are here. Uh, so yeah, some of these species are just innocuous. They blend in. Others create big ecological problems. Burmese pythons are a huge one right now. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we're coming up with lots of different ways to try and uh, control that issue. The python challenge is kind of an isolated event. People come down and compete for catching these animals. It's probably not going to have an impact on the population. But it's an opportunity to get the word out about uh, invasive species and the problems they pose. Yeah. So what is, what actually ends up happening to the pythons that they catch in this event? 
they're euthanized. Oh, okay. Humanely, humanely, you know, as humanely as possible. Um, the the problem is that we're talking about hundreds, if not thousands, of these large snakes. They're wild. They've been living in the wild. They're not tame. What do you do with them? There's only so many shelters. There's so many people that can adopt these animals, and so euthanasia becomes the most logical thing to do with them. You know, if you're coming at this from an animal welfare perspective, there's really no excuse for euthanizing mm-hmm. the animals. But if you're coming at it from a conservation biology perspective, something needs to be done. And this is, you know, the best, or I'll say the most logical thing to do with them. Yeah. So I, one thing to bring it back to your book that I, I think is interesting and, and probably makes a challenge uh, for a species like uh, invasive species like the python, is even though those are or Burmese python, even those uh, those are large um, snakes, really large snakes, I believe, um, they're hard to spot. And one thing that really came across in your book is that we we probably have snakes all around us. Um, that was something that really kind of upset my wife uh, when I told her that. But uh, <laughs> um, it's true. Yeah. So, um, even in Brooklyn, <laughs> even in Brooklyn, I'm going to, I'm going to be, I'm going to be going up to the park prospect park and checking that out. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, um, is there a way to get better at finding snakes in your environment? Yeah. It really boggles the mind how great these things are at hiding 15, 16, 17 feet long. You can put, these pythons in the area that basically looks like an overgrown lawn and they will disappear. And when you're talking about the Everglades, which is a huge expansive swamp, there's really no way of how many animals you're walking by. Yeah. Um, So the traditional way of finding these things is walking around and looking for them. If you know where to look and if you kind of get the search image every once in a while, you get lucky. Uh, But folks are trying to develop really innovative new ways to find snakes motivated by some of these invasive species like the brown tree snake in Guam and the, and the Burmese python in Florida. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be, you know, thermal cameras. It could be pheromone traps. We don't currently have the technology or the knowledge to reliably find these animals, but it's an area of active research. Well, that, but there, is there anything that, that like individuals could do to improve their snake finding ability? besides besides looking down (laughs) (laughs) or up you know or up in that yeah (laughs) i don't think that there is a substitution for getting outside and looking around uh personally i like to just walk very slowly and take a lot of time looking Mm -hmm. around because these are highly camouflaged animals that are sitting still uh other people i know just kind of walk really fast and hope that they'll just happen to come across a snake that's crossing the path. Um, so maybe the real answer is somewhere in the middle, mm-hmm. uh, but it also helps to go out with somebody that has field experience that can point out some of the animals that you're walking by. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes that's unnerving to people when you're walking behind them and be like, Hey, can, you want to stop for a minute? Turn around. Look what you just stepped over. Um, <laughs> it's, it's happened. It happens a lot. So, um, Another thing you mentioned in the book is just how vulnerable, you know, vulnerable snakes are uh, as a, as a, as a group. They don't, they have fangs and teeth uh, and venom in some cases, but they don't have legs. Um, they're, they don't typically move that fast. So I guess, and I guess I could see there being an advantage that, that that would allow you to hide or, or climb into places that would, that other animals wouldn't be able to? I mean, what is the evolutionary advantage of, of being a snake um, sure. versus the drawbacks of, of basically being a, a, a long tube with a mouth on the front of That's it? That's right. <laughs> yeah, I, I, think you, I think you hit on it. It's, it's better for hiding, particularly yeah. underground in tunnels. That's the, you know, it's hard to answer questions like why did something evolve? But the general idea is that a limbless body form let the animal spend more time and move easily underground. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. You got to hand it to these creatures, though. (laughs) I mean, can you imagine trying to survive in a swamp 
or in the forest with no arms and legs. I mean, these are, you got to give these animals <laughs> a little credit. And, uh, yeah, I try to uh, counter the stigma and the reputation of these animals as these fierce creatures always trying to get at you. They're, yeah. they're basically a, a little piece of rope. Um, and if you don't touch it, if you don't step on it, you don't try and pick it up. They're <laughs> really not really not that dangerous. <laughs> if you do come across a snake and you can ID it as something that's potentially venomous, what should you do about that? Anything? Ignore it? Uh, what kill would you it? do? Well, <laughs> that's, a, that's a really good question. Um, I think I would just let it go on its, on its merry way and just try to stay yeah. out of its way. Why not? Um, unless it was, you know, moving towards my, my one of my kids or something. I don't think I would probably do anything. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I, I avoid uh, telling people what they should or should not do. And I talk about what I do. And, you know, it's not, you know, we, we've already talked about these animals are hard to find. So when you do stumble across one, it's a unique opportunity to kind of observe it, uh, learn more about its behavior mm -hmm. uh, and, and just see what it does it's really you're really not in danger even if it is a venomous snake um and something that i talk about in the book this is really difficult for i think folks to wrap their head around it's more dangerous to kill a snake than it is just to watch it and go away even if that means that snake is alive for a day someday in the future it's when we're messing with snakes that's when the vast majority of problems happen uh, so I don't encourage people to do that it's again it's hard to wrap your head around when there's a snake in your yard uh, but I'm, so I'm talking in general and then I think that you know killing that snake having your kids kind of learn that that's what you do about snakes that's kind of setting them up for dangerous interactions too yeah. I think watching where you put your hands and your feet observing snakes, letting them go on their way. That is the solution. That's the way to reduce your chance of getting bit. Yeah. And is there, are there certain behaviors aside from, you know, actually attacking a snake that are dangerous, say, you know, putting your hands into cracks and crevices if you were out hiking or climbing? I think climbing I could see being a real hazard because you're, maybe reaching up at somewhere that you can't see. Yeah. Yeah. Don't stick your hands where you can't, you know, definitely not in logs or in holes or things like that. I'm imagining climbing and I'm imagining kind of a barren rock face and that's not really a good snake habitat. So I wouldn't expect one to be kind of in there, but yeah, if there's tunnels, you don't want, you don't want to be walking barefoot in the swamp or in overgrown, uh, lawns things like that yeah um, those that that's probably pretty risky but you know even if you step on a snake and i know a lot of people who have done this they don't bite you yeah don't try this at home <laughs> but if you mess up and step on a snake there's a good chance it still won't bite you yeah so it, get, it kind of gets back to that idea that they're they're somewhat defenseless and and would probably rather just get away from you than than have a battle <laughs> What does a snake have to gain by fighting with you? Mm -hmm. The best, best case scenario is that it ended up where it was before, by itself with nobody bothering it. And so if you're already by yourself with nobody bothering you, why would you fight a giant predator just to get back to the same spot? Right. But if you make a snake fear for its life, it will defend itself. Uh, and some snakes do have pretty good defensive strategies, including Venom. Hey, I just wanted to take a quick pause to thank HostGator, this episode's sponsor. HostGator is one of the world's top 10 largest web hosting companies with over 8 million hosted domains. They have around-the-clock support, and all shared web hosting plans include a 45-day money-back guarantee. I've personally used HostGator since 2008 for all of my web hosting needs, and I couldn't be happier. Sign up today using the promo code SCIENCE and you'll receive 25% off any new hosting plan. Now on with the show. What, what are the, you know, sort of top three, if you had to pick three out of your book, 
myths that you come across or that that you think need to be debunked what what are the three myths about snakes that we that need to go away the the first one that comes to mind is the relative danger of baby venomous snakes versus adults lots of people will believe that baby snakes cannot control the amount of venom that they include in a bite and therefore more dangerous than adults there's really no evidence for it um, you can come up with some ways that it's potentially plausible but i don't really accept that as evidence it's actually happening you know you think about what does it take to learn you need to go through several scenarios you need reinforcement and I just don't see that happening in a snake's life over the course of it maturing, that all of a sudden it's learning the proper amount. Yeah. End of the day, don't get bitten by any venomous snakes, <laughs> whether it's a baby or an adult. And you don't really have to worry about this stuff. Uh, but a big adult can just hold more venom in its venom glands. Yeah. So it doesn't really matter what a baby snake is thinking or not. It's not going to be as dangerous as an adult that's a really common myth maybe the thinking is that the uh the snake is more uh because it's smaller the venom is more concentrated <laughs> that's the only thing i could think of <laughs> sure and uh this this falls into the category of potentially plausible because uh in some snakes some venomous snakes the type of venom or the composition of the venom will change uh, because they prey on different things. Mm -hmm. And it's a little bit of a chicken and egg scenario. Does it change because uh, of evolutionary reasons or does it change because of selection reasons? Who knows what? But um, yeah. some snakes eat little things like lizards when they're young and then prey on mammals when they're older. So it might be relatively more dangerous depending on what kind of creature you are. Yeah. Uh, Interesting. Okay, so so that's the first one. What's what's number two in terms of myths myths that need to go away? Okay, um, you know i I don't want to I don't want to seem like the ivory tower PhD biologist and say these people you need to get rid of these myths, but <laughs> I I just like to make sure that these people have kind of the scientific information they need to evaluate these things on their own and you know sometimes it's these are fun natural history stories but i do want to spend some time distinguishing between what there is evidence for and what we should probably be a little bit skeptical of um, and so the, the second one is probably using the shape of a snake's head to identify it ah uh, yes yeah that's a common one a lot of people learn that if you have a snake that its head is that shape, that it's venomous, a triangle or a diamond or, or an arrow shaped. And it's true that I can look at some of these snakes and kind of make out the subtle differences. But if you're not really used to seeing snakes a lot, it's, it's all relative, right? And every snake has a head, it's a skull, it's at least relatively triangle shaped. Uh, so a lot of people will you know turn any snake they see into one that has a triangle shaped head um, so that one that one has got to go i think that's pretty common too i believe my eldest son we were looking at a ranger rick magazine or uh, national geographic kids and i believe there was a diagram in there that brought that up so it's very common yeah and, you know, the, the target for my books aren't necessarily the people that don't know better. Uh, some of it is to these environmental educators and these herpetologists because they haven't really, you know, they say these tips, but then they don't really evaluate how those tips are being remembered and perceived and put in action. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, you, you, you're going to see those rules of thumb anywhere. So what are the exceptions uh, in terms of snakes that violate this rule? Sure. And, and I don't even like calling it a rule. It's kind of like a general rule of thumb. It's a relative head shape. Uh, but uh, that triangle head shape is uh, associated with pit vipers. These are the rattlesnakes, cottonmouths, copperheads. Uh, but there are other types of venomous snakes too, like coral snakes. They're in the Elapidae family, cobras, mm. Australian brown snake, um, mamba, these are not pit vipers, and they don't have that relatively triangular-shaped head. So 
please keep that in mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. And is there a non-venomous snake that has a triangular shaped head? This is where it gets really tricky yeah. because many snakes, when they're feeling defensive, they will initiate body postures that actually make them look like they have a triangular shaped head. Uh, this probably deters predators who are know that that shape is venomous and then they'll go away. Uh, but we don't know that. We just see a snake, ven- uh, non-venomous water snakes do this a lot. And there's pictures of it in my book. Yeah, It's like a perfect triangle, but it's just a defensive strategy. They're, they're not venomous. But that would, I mean, that would seem to indicate that there is something to that, that triangular shape, right? Yeah, it's true. And, uh, you know, what we have to think about is that when we give these tips and tricks and help people identify snakes, uh, it, it can't, it, I mean, there's a basis, there's a kernel of truth there, yeah. but when, but when you're not used to looking at these snakes, like I said, everything is relative. Uh, so if you're a hawk and your life depends on you identifying the right kind of s- snake, you probably have a better uh, sense of what's venomous or not than an average person that sees one snake a year. Right, right. That makes sense. Um, okay, so that's that's number two. What, what, what would you say is number three? I kind of want to put you on the spot and think of and and ask you uh is there a particular chapter that you think it's like wow i didn't know about this but i think it's important i thought the thing about the snakes jumping or jumping out of the trees was really interesting but i think that is a um very specific question to people that are that are maybe traveling through swampland um (laughs) But, you know, there's a few myths that focus on the cottonmouth, and they just got such a bad reputation. They're going to, you know, these are the myths. They're going to jump out of the trees and into your boat. They're going to chase you. They're aggressive. And, you know, and they're in New York when they're, they don't really get north of Virginia. Uh, this is a, an animal. There may be more myths about the cottonmouth than any other species in North America. That's my idea. I think that one interesting thing that you brought up in the book is there's this myth that snakes travel in pairs or in groups now i've never heard that before um yeah it seems a little unlikely given that reptiles aren't particularly social from my understanding um what, what do you think about that yeah this is kind of a tricky one because lots of people think snakes travel in pairs and that there's some kind of I'll use these words loosely, psychic bond between these two animals and their friends, and they're going to team up against you or they're following each other. That's not really the case. However, there are some reasons why a snake might be attracted to another snake. And when it's that time of year, how do you make baby snakes? (laughs) Well, you know, the snakes get together. Uh, So sometimes males will follow females, and uh, that could have been the origin of that myth. Uh, however, sometimes people think that if you kill a snake, you better watch out because its mate or its partner is going to come after you or it's there, it's waiting. That's not really the case. Yeah. Most of the time, these animals are by themselves, although in suitable habitat under unique conditions, you can find them uh, grouped up. But there's no like, there's no bond there. Uh, yeah. They're just. Uh, fulfilling biological functions i mean that's probably true of reptiles across the board they don't there's no mating for life sort of a situation is that right i'm not familiar with that like you would see in some birds which are you know that distantly related uh however with the introduction of some of these genetic tools we are learning a lot more about snakes and uh, we do learn that in some cases like the rattlesnakes that return to the same dens every year they will have quote unquote friends that they you will often see them with. They don't need to be spending time, but they're often next to each other. Um, probably some of these snakes are reproducing with each other year after year. Um, is there some kind of social bond? I don't know. Maybe they perceive each other in some way. Um, 
but I wouldn't go so far as to say that they're friends like you and I have friends. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that brings up an interesting point is um, snake mating, which is um, can be quite a spectacle sometimes, but they're 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 usually group activities, correct? I mean, it's not is it is it a one on one activity or? It depends. So yeah, you know, we talk about snakes, but there's hundreds of different species, mm-hmm. and they're behaving differently. They all have unique uh, habits, habits and behaviors and diets and things like that. Uh, so some snakes, you know, in the in the animal kingdom, reproduction is a competition. Sometimes the competition happens before mating happens, sometimes it's after, sometimes it's during, and snakes have a variety of strategies. The vipers, the males tend to fight each other, and the winner of the fight gets to mate with the female. Mm-hmm. Other species, like water snakes, the female will put out these pheromones, and a whole bunch of males will just kind of writhe around her for the chance to mate. This is probably the origin of the breeding balls, the, you know, many people have heard of the myth that there's this dude water skiing on vacation and uh, he accidentally, you know, hit a wave and he fell into this nest of cotton mouths or this breeding ball. Cotton mouths don't have breeding balls or nests. However, you might find uh, a mess of water snakes in the water, but they're, they're reproducing. Yeah. Uh, this is how the pythons do it. This is how anacondas do it. Um, so that that's a different strategy. So it's kind of a um, to to bring it to a, a primate level. It's sort of the gorilla strategy versus the chimpanzee strategy, where the gorilla is kind of the winner take all in terms of females. The male gorillas kind of take have a harem, if you will. They battle each mm-hmm. other. They're very aggressive, and then the chimpanzees, of course, are involved in a lot of sperm competition (laughs) so you see that sort of same thing across the snake uh world as well it's true that that is that analogy works although the for the snakes after the fight that social structure doesn't maintain like it would be for a gorilla they don't maintain that Mm. uh, silverback status they'll fight again yeah next time one really interesting fact about or facet of snake reproduction um and i've we we have a a leopard gecko i don't know if you're familiar with that species but um they and they have something called hemipenes if i'm pronouncing that correctly um now the first time i saw that on our (laughs) on our leopard gecko i was like what the heck is going on here yeah but what (laughs) what what is going on there what what are what are what are hemipenes? This is such a strange concept. Yeah. Yeah, those are uh, what lizards and snakes have. Uh, those are That's the male reproductive organ. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're paired, so there's one on each side. Um, and when it's that time, typically they're inside of the body. Mm-hmm. And when it's time to get busy, it will, it will come out of the body and uh, into the female. Uh, so... Yeah, it's they have paired sex organs called hemipenes. That's so interesting. And and do those snakes like don't have limbs or anything? Is are those also how they sort of hold on to the female to to reproduce? Yeah, uh, you you know they can situate themselves and they're intertwined, so they are in place. However, a female could decide she wants to go, and she will in some cases drag the male behind her because he's still stuck in there uh. um so that's, that's probably unpleasant for all parties <laughs> but but it's not, that sometimes happens i can only imagine um <laughs> uh i was gonna ask you something else oh and and this uh, you know snake uh, mating brings up another uh common myth that you mentioned um which is this idea of the mating dance that the snakes are locked in this you know um this intricate courtship dance like you see in birds sometimes, but that's not the case. Yeah, this is a big fight. Uh, you know, people <laughs> see these snakes. It's called a mating dance, and just so people can kind of vision it, there's two snakes, they're going like this, mm-hmm. and uh, it's not like two swans. Uh, these are two males 
vying for position. And when they're in that position, they'll slam each other down. Um, this is male, male combat for the right to, or the opportunity to mate with a female who's probably nearby and hidden. Uh, but nine times out of 10, if you show this, uh, to anybody, they're going to tell you that it's mating. Uh, but, and that's just, that's unfortunate because they're not, <laughs> the mating is kind of a more subdued affair and, uh, they are intertwining sometimes and sometimes they'll lift their heads up a little bit, but much, much more subdued and typically horizontal. Yeah. Unlike the vipers and some other snakes who will go vertical, um, to fight. Where do you think that this myth comes from? Uh, you know, when it comes to all these myths, I think we can trace it back to natural history, wildlife not being prioritized in schools and society. Uh, so that's kind of the starting point. Yeah. Uh, but then after that, you know, unfortunately, it's just called a mating dance. And I don't know who picked that name. Uh. Some herpetologists in the early 20th century probably called it a mating dance. Maybe they thought it was mating at the time, <laughs> uh, but that name has stuck. Um, and uh, it's kind of a foreign concept to people to hear that uh, snakes will fight. So I think it's much more uh, intuitive to suggest that they're mating. Yeah, that's a, it's a very unfortunate choice of terms because I don't think you would ever hear that with other species that, that they would call that a mating dance. That would be between the male and the female if there was some kind of courtship you know, right. going on. So that's very strange. Um, yeah. yeah, unfortunate. Um, <laughs> so you mentioned uh, education and sort of a lack of education in schools about wildlife. Um, one person that I've seen on YouTube who's been very popular with the younger kids I know is Coyote Peterson, if you're familiar with him. Um, and then, of course, you know, Steve Irwin and some of these. I, I can't keep I can't keep all the names straight. It seems like every year there's some person popping up that sort of the wants to not live alongside wildlife they want to wrestle wildlife so <laughs> what do you what do you think about these characters and do you think that they're doing uh, more harm than good or or vice versa you trying to get me in trouble <laughs> um it's a controversial question, and I don't want to get in trouble, so I'm going to choose my words carefully. Um, it's not how I interact with wildlife. And I hope I can encourage people to appreciate wildlife as they are, just observe them in their natural surroundings mm -hmm. without catching them, without upsetting them, without pissing them off. Um, many people will say that folks like Steve Irwin are the reason that they are passionate about wildlife today. It's why they're in their conservation careers. It's why they uh, get involved in conservation programs. Who am I to say that's wrong? Uh, so I think that the their legacy is a mixed one. I think that uh, some people are encouraged to have kind of a this aggressive, uh, confrontational, sensational relationship with animals. Sometimes it turns into something else. Uh, but um, how, how's that for a diplomatic answer? <laughs> um, I, I don't I don't generally catch animals unless there's a good reason or if I can use the opportunity to uh, educate, which is the same thing that, that others do, but I won't go so far as to let them bite me or um, put these animals in a really stressful situation. Uh, I, I can see some rare examples why yeah. there might be some educational value, but it seems like that's the appeal, getting bitten, wrestling these animals, um, stressing them out. And I, I wish that we could move past that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess you could also make the argument that it may potentially put people in harm's way because they have a they have a perception that the animals aren't going to fight back against them or that it's, you know, easy to grab a snake by the head, for example. And um, as with anything, that probably takes a bit of practice and, and you have to know what you're doing. And, and they probably have a, a team of, you know, <laughs> people standing by to rush them to the hospital. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. I've never worked well, on a show like that, but 
yeah. Steve Irwin died. Yeah. Doing this. Right. It, uh, it it is a dangerous activity, whether you're trained or not. Mm-hmm. And especially in the social media age, and people want you know take these pictures and take selfies with animals. Uh, there are there are definitely stories of people uh, making silly mistakes with venomous snakes, probably uh, to kind of get the sensational interaction and feedback that they've seen on TV. Yeah. Um, so respect these animals. That's, that's what I would like people to do. Yeah. That, that, that sounds good. Sounds good to me as well. Um, <laughs> I, I think I would just want to encourage people to appreciate these snakes. You don't need to catch them. Maybe go out and just go look for them. And, and that's what I really want people to do. I, I don't want this book to be about this party pooper uh, with the scientific data. I, I really want people to encourage, uh, I really want to encourage people to just learn about these things. There's fascinating. The truth is fascinating. The truth is stranger than fiction. Um, and we don't give these animals a lot of credit. So I, I hope some people might give them another look. And as we, as we learned in the beginning of this podcast, I need to get out more into nature and, and look for snakes in my environment. So is there a particular species that you would like me to, to find and identify uh, bef- before we interact again on Twitter or, or some, someplace else? Sure. Uh, so it's not a great time of year to go out and find snakes. Mm-hmm. Um, your homework assignment for this spring is to look for northern water snakes and they'll be uh, coming out in the spring looking for mates starting to warm up they're going to be in the creeks they're going to be in the underbrush around the streams and ponds i bet you'll find one all right professor steen i'll, I'll take i'll take that assignment on wholeheartedly thank okay. you um <laughs> So with that, I think I think it's a good place to stop. So, uh, David, thanks so much for coming on. I'm glad that we finally got a chance to talk. Um, this has been really interesting, very enlightening. The book is called uh, "The Secret of Snakes: The Science Beyond the Myths." Um, we've we barely barely scratched the surface of it. There's like there's like 28 myths about snakes, and as I mentioned, some of them kind of baffled me because that because they haven't um they're not questions i would think to ask so it's a very it's a great it's an interesting book um it's it's a great um sort of primer on reptiles and biology and everything so i would definitely check it out and i just wanted to thank you uh again for coming on thank you for having me and the opportunity to talk about one of my favorite subjects awesome Well, that's it for this show. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. Email us at feedback at sciencecentric.com. Also, don't forget, you can support future episodes of this podcast by heading over to sciencecentric.com slash support and making a donation or purchase. The Science Centric Podcast is a FlowSpark Media production. Our audio engineer for this episode was Alexander James. Guest booking was handled by Melissa David. Our intro-outro music comes courtesy of BitBasic. Thanks for listening, and until next time, I'm Eric Olson.